Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. The men could feel their blood boiling. They were seething with uncontrolled anger. And finally, they were going to do something about it. For far too long, a charlatan named Edmund Creffield had conned their wives, sisters, and daughters. He had tricked them into stepping out on their own families and children. The women left everything they knew behind to join Edmund's church, if you could call it that. These men had had enough. They wanted retribution, an eye for an eye. So they settled on the good old-fashioned form of punishment, of tarring and feathering. In January of 1904, the group attacked Edmund, the man who claimed to be the second coming of Jesus. They held him down and poured hot tar all over his body. Then they rolled him in feathers. If this didn't do the job of scaring him off, at the least, it would embarrass Edmund into leaving town. But much to the men's dismay, their act of vigilanteism didn't spook Edmund. Instead, it emboldened him. The very next day, smelling of fresh tar, he married one of his devoted followers, a young woman from the community. The wedding was seen as the ultimate act of blatant defiance, and it sent the men into a rage. Now, they would have to escalate their plans in order to get proper revenge. Boy, this is a story. It's a, it's a story involving uh, cults and scandal. You've got, you know, you've got sex, you've got murder, you've got, you've got everything back then. I mean, oh, you've got it all. If only anyone could have predicted how badly it would all end, maybe they would have done things differently. He had to have been very charismatic to have this many people buy into him and to follow him and to believe in him and to kill for him eventually. I'm Ashley Korsland, and this is Wicked West. Episode 6, The Brides of Edmund. Born in either the 1860s or 70s, Franz Edmund Creffield grew up in Germany. He was said to have been highly educated and even trained for priesthood. But some accused him of fleeing the country before his 20th birthday to avoid serving in the army. They called him a deserter. Whatever the truth, Edmund Creffield emigrated to America around the turn of the century. He arrived in Corvallis, Oregon in 1903, where he took up work as a soldier for the Salvation Army. Because the Salvation Army you know, helps the, the downtrodden, but also spreads the word of Christianity. Carrie Timchuk with the Oregon Historical Society says right away, Edmund began preaching the word of God and evangelizing the lost and less fortunate. So he probably was down there looking for, you know, trying to help those in need. 
At the time, Corvallis was a sleepy agricultural community of just a few thousand people. Nestled on the western side of Oregon's Willamette River, it was a hub for rail and river commerce, as well as trading. The local university was the Oregon Agricultural College, which today is known as Oregon State University. The area's demographic was largely white and Protestant, and people were very devout. It seemed like the perfect place for itinerant preacher Edmund Crefield. It all started innocently enough, but soon Edmund took a much stricter biblical path. He parted ways with the Salvation Army to form his own congregation. Edmund claimed he was a messenger sent straight from God, and it was his religious duty to convert people to his radical form of Christianity. Many of his fellow soldiers also left the Salvation Army and followed Edmund. Who knows how, how he did it? He just developed this, this name, this reputation. Uh, he again sees himself as Jesus, starts preaching, and people, uh, amazingly enough, uh, believe him and, and follow him. Slowly, his following grew larger. Edmund began preaching on the road around Oregon. But many small towns were dismissive of his extreme teachings. In Corvallis, though, Edmund seemed to find his stride. People started hearing about a man who was so devout and pure that God himself had sent him to offer them salvation. Before long, Edmund developed a following of several dozen people, mostly women. And not just any women. They were women of status and financial means. Many of his supporters, his congregation, were women of means who saw him as this, this exciting figure in their life. Uh, and they see him as Jesus. Uh, some tell people that he is Jesus. Religious fervor seemed to have blinded them. And how could it not? After all, Edmund claimed to be the Messiah, the prophet of a new religion. With their eager support, he formed a church he called the Brides of Christ, he even changed his name to Joseph after the successor to Moses, who led the Israelites to the Promised Land. Edmund's followers were extremely loyal. It seemed like the more radical his teachings became, the more they trusted him. It was as if he was a snake oil salesman. Edmund promised them he could speak directly to God and that he and his anointed ones must prepare for the end of the world. Their church sermons devolved into episodes of unintelligible fits of moaning, shouting, and speaking in tongues. They feverishly convulsed on the ground in a trance-like state for hours each day during prayer sessions. And he stages these elaborate services with chanting and singing and him preaching. And when he's doing the preaching, the congregation is rolling on the ground. They're rolling back and forth in, uh, in excitement and passion. While they called themselves the Brides of Christ Church, people in town called them the Holy Rollers. Edmund Crefield instructed his sect to reject all worldly possessions, 
the women let down their hair, burned their modern wardrobe, and went barefoot. They were said to look like prisoners, their clothing ragged, and their appearances gaunt due to weight loss from fasting. Edmund claimed that they would only secure a place in heaven if they cut ties with material possessions and with those who didn't believe. With that, many of these respected, decent, God-fearing women abandoned their husbands, families, and even children. Eventually, as you might imagine, this does not meet with favor by many in the Carvalho's community. Uh, the husbands and fathers brothers of the women who have uh, come under his influence, being those most uh, concerned about him, opposed to him, to have something like this, a, a, a cult, uh, where the man believed he was Jesus and was taking numerous women as his partners and where they were wailing and rolling around on, on the floor during services. You could imagine what mainstream society thought about this. Despite his less than honorable reputation, Edmund somehow worked himself into the good graces of a prominent local citizen named Orlando Victor Hurt, who went by the initials O.V. His wife Sarah and daughter Maud were two of Edmund's loyal followers. O.V. was very skeptical at first, but eventually became a short-time believer himself and allowed Edmund to use his home for prayer services. At one point during this period, neighbors of the Hertz recounted witnessing some very strange behavior coming from the Brides of Christ. They claimed to have watched the cult members tossing the Hurt family's personal possessions into a bonfire in the front yard, everything from furniture to guitars to a bicycle. And to the town's horror, there was salacious gossip that Edmund's followers even burned the Hurt family's pets in the fire. That led to fevered speculation that a human sacrifice could be next. From there, the rumors kept getting weirder and the situation more problematic for Edmund Crefield and his Brides of Christ. And soon stories develop about uh, Mr. Crefield being uh, quite the Lothario and taking uh, liberties with many of the women in his congregation. Oh yes, there were plenty of stories that Edmund was engaging in less than pious relations with many of the women in his church, relationships unbecoming of a righteous man. Rumors of infidelity, adultery, and immoral activity in the cult. Edmund was said to have told his parishioners that marriage was not necessary. After learning of these less-than-sanctimonious teachings, O.V. Hurt grew frustrated with Edmund and kicked the cult out of his home. By now, town leaders had banned the group from holding meetings within city limits due to their loud, unsavory prayer sessions and rolling on the ground. The press had even dubbed rollerism a public menace. So the members established a campsite at a small river island a few miles from Corvallis. Most of the women still refused to return to their families or even reestablish contact with their husbands. And this led the men in town to grow more enraged by the day. 
In the winter of 1904, some of them banded together. They called themselves the White Caps, and they came up with a plan to either injure Edmund enough to leave, or at least scare him off. And eventually they do the, uh, the early 20th century habit of tarring and feathering him and trying to run him out of town. How did that go over? It, it, it does not work for, for, it does not scare him out of town. And, and it, perhaps it also motivates him. It seemed to have emboldened Edmund. Instead of leaving Corvallis, he strengthened his ties to the community. One day after the tarring and feathering, Edmund Crefield married O.V. Hurt's daughter, Maud. Uh, two of his uh, biggest supporters were uh, the, the mother and daughter, Sarah and Maud Hurt and they were both part of his congregation. And he marries Maud, the daughter. And it said that at the wedding, one could smell tar. Uh, he had, it was soon after he had been tarred and feathered and he had perhaps not cleaned himself up enough. And so there he was at the wedding to Maud. But if you thought that Edmund had retired from his womanizing ways, you'd be wrong. With the ink on his marriage certificate still fresh, Edmund was accused of having an affair with his new bride's mother, Sarah Hurt, and with another married woman in town. So he's, he's married the Maud, but also there's another story that he's having sexual relations with this other woman in town who was married. Adultery is a crime, back then, a, a prosecutable crime. These new accusations gave public officials something concrete to investigate. The second woman Edmund was allegedly involved with was a follower named Donna Starr. Her husband filed a criminal complaint citing adultery. Donna signed an affidavit admitting to improper relations. She later confessed to having sex with Edmund as part of a purification ritual. According to news reports, Donna was one of a dozen women and girls whose involvement in the church meant consummating a physical relationship here on earth with Edmund. And as for Edmund, well, he went on the run to escape the charge of adultery. But he wouldn't be able to hide for long. With the serious accusations of adultery being lobbied at Edmund Crefield, local officials issued a warrant for his arrest, and a statewide search for the cult leader ensued. But Edmund was nowhere to be found. During his absence, the Brides of Christ began to fall apart. According to the Oregon Historical Society, members spent their days lying on the floor with their faces pressed against the ground. They prayed and claimed that God was sending them messages while Edmund was away. Concerned family members petitioned the courts to have their loved ones committed to asylums as a means of keeping them safe and getting them help. Many of the women were sent to insane asylum. Carrie Timchuk with the Oregon Historical Society. The children were put in orphanages if they didn't have a father or lost track of who the, who the father was. So the congregation is broken up. 
By July of 1904, six months after the tarring and feathering incident, Edmund turned up at the home of his father-in-law, O.V. Hurt. Edmund was still married to O.V.'s daughter, Maud. One day, Maud's teenage brother went out in search of worms for a fishing trip. He snooped around under the front porch of the family home, and to his shock, found a filthy, smelly, and emaciated Edmund Crefield. He had been hiding in a dirt pit he dug in the crawl space, under the very home that Edmund used to hold prayer services, before O.V. Hurt kicked him out. It was unclear how long Edmund had been hiding out there, but by the looks of him, it had been a while. It was later discovered that O.V.'s wife Sarah had been giving Edmund food and water until she was committed to the state asylum the month before. Police arrested Edmund and he went on trial for adultery. It only took a jury 15 minutes to convict him. A September 1904 issue of the Oregonian newspaper led with the headline, He Goes to Prison. The article read, The Apostle of the Holy Rollers, after a sensational rambling speech in Judge Sears' court yesterday, in which he confessed and quoted scripture in extenuation of his crimes, was found guilty by a jury of having sustained improper relations with Mrs. Starr. Crefield said God was on his side and will see to his vindication. When asked if he had anything to say why the sentence should not be pronounced, he answered, nothing. And after the judge had passed judgment, the prisoner said, God bless you. Edmund was sentenced to two years in prison. He was taken by evening train to the Oregon State Penitentiary. During his time in custody, the women and girls in his cult, who had not been institutionalized, slowly reconnected with their families. And those who were in the asylum were released, apparently deemed cured of whatever had afflicted them. Things began to get back to normal, and the community felt a sense of calm. Unfortunately, the peaceful atmosphere didn't last long. By 1906, Edmund Crefield was released from prison and quickly fell back into his charlatan ways. He gets the old band back together. He gets the congregation back together. The Brides of Christ Church reunited. This time, Edmund claimed to be Christ himself, risen from the dead. He adopted the name Elijah and said his death had been his incarceration. His resurrection was his release from custody, liberated from the shackles of the modern world. Edmund's re-entry into society was a huge story in town and was splashed across the front pages of almost every newspaper in the region. I've, I've got a list here of newspaper articles from that time. And you look at, you look at the headlines. Uh, Crefield is guilty, Oregon Daily Journal. Uh, Holy Rollers Insane, from the Brownsville Times, a small town outside of Corvallis. Uh, their Queer Acts, Corvallis Times. Tarred and Feathered, Corvallis Times. Crefield Poses as Jeremiah, the Oregon Daily Journal. Uh, just stories and stories and stories uh, about, about Crefield. Still, Edmund's followers were sucked right back in. 
It seemed like his power and hold over them knew no bounds. Soon, Edmund began boasting about possessing special powers of sorts. He claimed to have predicted the great 1906 San Francisco earthquake. It struck on April 18th and was considered one of the most significant earthquakes of all time. It lasted less than a minute, but its impact was disastrously fierce. The quake ignited several fires that ravaged the city. Some 3,000 people died, and almost a half million more became homeless. And he's, he says that he has uh, he's predicted this and caused the San Francisco earthquake, the big earthquake. That now becomes part of his shtick that he knew it was going to happen. Uh, and again, he starts marketing himself as Jesus, all-powerful, who can make things happen, who knows when things are happening. Edmund knew the fear that this would instill in his followers and used it to his advantage. Not only did he claim to have predicted the California earthquake, but threatened that he had the ability to destroy Corvallis if he wanted. And these ladies, these wives of people, daughters of people, sisters of people, start uh, to follow him. And, you know, again, it's suspected that he has the, uh, he's taken liberties with all these women who are part of his congregation as the, as the leader of the congregation, that, that is his right to do so. And once again, this enraged the men in town. Uh, it leads to men talking about doing more serious things than tarring and feathering the talks of killing him. Eventually, he and, and many of the women head off to Newport, the Newport area on the Oregon coast. Having had enough of the threats from people in the small community of Corvallis, Edmund decided to hit the road for a new home for his church, their own Eden on the coast of Oregon. One of the followers was a woman named Cora Hartley, who came along with her daughter, Sophia. But they didn't go alone. Unbeknownst to the women, Cora's husband followed them. And when Edmund and his parishioners boarded a ferry in Newport, Oregon, Lewis Hartley made a drastic decision. Shows up in Newport uh, with a gun, finds him on a ferry, a, a boat, uh, but takes shots at him, but the gun misfires, doesn't work. He had put the wrong bullets in. So after this incident in Newport, Crefield is a little more concerned for his life. Edmund told his devout followers that he and Maude were going to set up a colony in Canada. So he flees Oregon and he heads to Seattle with Maude, his wife. The two traveled north and made a stop in Seattle, Washington. And there, in the Emerald City, is where everything would change. As Edmund and Maude strolled along the streets of Seattle on May 7th of 1906, a man watched from a distance. He had positioned himself near a drugstore and took a deep inhale as he raised his arm toward the couple. He stared down the barrel of a 32 caliber revolver, pointing it straight at the back of Edmund Crefield's neck. With a squeeze of his finger, George Mitchell fired the gun one time. Edmund dropped to the ground. He was killed instantly. As he lay in a pool of blood, witnesses panicked and ran to find police. George Mitchell stood there for a moment, stunned. The mill worker from Oregon had finally done it, taken down his target. 
George was the brother of Donna Starr, the woman whose relationship with Edmund spurred charges of adultery that landed Edmund in prison. But George had another sister, 16-year-old Esther Mitchell, who was rumored to be Edmund's next love interest. So George, George Mitchell, uh, whose sister Esther was part of the congregation, and there was rumors that she was going to be his next wife, that he, he was going to take her as a wife too, to be a bride of Christ. George had traveled to Seattle to avenge the honor of both of his sisters. After shooting Edmund, he didn't try to escape. He calmly surrendered to police and handed over the murder weapon. Edmund's body was taken to a funeral home in Seattle and was then buried in the Lakeview Cemetery. Although, if you ask his cult members, this was only a temporary resting place. Edmund was sure to rise from the grave soon enough. In the weeks that followed, George Mitchell prepared for trial. He reportedly sent a telegram to O.V. Hurt, Edmund's father-in-law. George wrote to him, saying, I've got my man. I'm in jail here. In a maybe not-so-surprising turn of events, O.V. helped secure an excellent defense team for George. Once George Mitchell's on trial for murdering him, his attorneys are paid for by Maud's father, Creffield's father-in-law. He just despised his son Despised his son-in-law, who was also allegedly slept with his wife as well. So yeah, he, so he paid for the attorney of his son-in-law's murderer. The defense planned to argue that George had killed Edmund because the cult leader lusted after George's teenage sister. He feared Edmund was going to make Esther the mother of the next Christ. And it seemed like George had quite a support system as he prepared for trial. A district attorney from Oregon even wrote a letter to the prosecutor in Seattle, seemingly defending what George had done. Saying, anybody in his right mind basically would have killed this guy. There's no reason why George Mitchell should be convicted of murder, because he was in his right to do it, basically excusing the murder. During trial, George's lawyers entered a formal defense of temporary insanity. They claimed he had learned so many reprehensible details about Edmund's sexual practices with his cult members, it drove George to madness. Several witnesses took the stand to substantiate those claims, like O.V. Hurt, who testified to Edmund's sexual depravity. O.V. told the court how his wife and two of his daughters were seduced by Edmund. According to the Seattle Times, O.V. described Edmund as a human vampire. During similar testimony from other men, George reportedly broke down sobbing. His distress and outward emotional fragility weighed on the jury. After all was said and done, jurors spent only one hour deliberating before returning a not guilty verdict. George Mitchell was acquitted and walked away from the courthouse a free man. A few days after the victorious conclusion to the murder trial, George and his brothers prepared to board a train back to Oregon. The men had made amends with their sister, Esther, who was heartbroken over Edmund Creffield's death. So when George saw his little sister heading his way at the train station, he smiled. He was pleasantly surprised that she had agreed to join them for the journey home. 
Around 4.20 that afternoon, George and his brothers got ready to board the train to Portland. Esther followed a couple feet behind the men. Silently, she drew a revolver from under a jacket she had rested across her arm and aimed it straight at her brother. Esther squeezed the trigger. The bullet pierced George's head behind his left ear. He died instantly. The fatal wound was delivered in nearly the same spot where George Mitchell had shot Edmund Crefield. She said, you know, that she had to get revenge and that he, her brother, had tarnished her reputation more than Crefield did. That by shooting Crefield, that he had done ill to her reputation, that basically telling the world that she was part of his congregation. Uh, so she murders her brother who had murdered the man, uh, the cult leader, who, who was going to allegedly take her for his next wife. What makes this story even more bizarre, the weapon used by Esther to kill her brother belonged to Maud Crefield, Edmund's wife. Both Esther and Maud were arrested. Neither expressed remorse for the murder of George Mitchell. A court later declared both of them delusional and dangerous. In the fall of 1906, six months after Edmund Crefield was shot on the streets of Seattle, his widow Maud died by suicide in the county jail. A medical examiner determined she died of strychnine poisoning. Officials said she was somehow able to smuggle the poison into the jail. As for Esther Mitchell, now 17 years old, she was tried for murder of her brother and found not guilty by reason of insanity. She was committed to an asylum and stayed there for several years. After her release, she moved back to the coastal town of Walport, Oregon, and eventually married. Then, in 1914, Esther also died by suicide. She ingested the same poison that Maud Crefield had used, strychnine. Esther was just 26 years old. An article in the Portland Evening Telegram read, Girl of Holy Roller fame, Esther Mitchell is dead by own hand. The article went on to say, The killing of her brother at Seattle after he had killed Crefield, the Holy Roller priest, had apparently preyed upon her mind continually and friends and relatives have been keeping a close watch on her for a long time. Many beautiful floral offerings were placed upon her grave by friends, and many tears were shed by those who knew her best. Esther Mitchell's suicide was the last chapter in perhaps the most infamous cult story in Oregon history, one that historians still study today. This story that just kept on going and going and just mesmerized Seattle and Portland, Corvallis, uh, so many places in the Northwest back then. has been written about by several scholarly journals. Uh, it's just uh, a story that has it all. A story about a cult that destroyed families and divided a once close-knit community. One that will forever puzzle anyone who reads about Edmund Crefield and his Brides of Christ.
This was the final episode for this season of Wicked West. Thanks for listening. Be sure to stay subscribed to the show for more episodes in the future. If you enjoyed Wicked West, check out our other series, Should Be Alive, The Yellow Car, and Urge to Kill, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to the Oregon Historical Society and Executive Director Carrie Timchuk for their assistance and research on Edmund Crefield and the Brides of Christ Church. For more information about the work of OHS, visit OHS.org. Wicked West is a KGW and Vault Studios production. Please subscribe and leave us a rating or review. We have a lot more information about this series, including videos and pictures, on kgw.com slash wickedwest and on the KGW YouTube page. This show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Ashley Korslin. Our audio editor and co-producer is Zachary Carver. Our executive producer is John Tierney. The Vault Studios team includes Will Johnson, Reed Redmond, and Ian Hill. Original artwork by Jeff Patterson and videography by Ken McCormick and Nick Bieber. Digital media by Louisa Anderson and Celeste Ruiz. Marketing and promotion by Jennifer Woodruff, Randy Cobb, and Skylar Stever. Special thanks to KGW General Manager Steve Carter, News Director Greg Retsinas, and the entire KGW staff. <laughs>